Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. Since the war began, the Russian military has suffered an unexpected battering. Last week, even President Putin's official spokesman had to admit the invasion hadn't gone to plan. We have significant losses of troops and uh, it's, it's, it's a huge tragedy for us. Thousands have been killed in Ukraine and a trail of destruction and horror now scars the country all because of the whims of one man. But despite international sanctions and protests in Russia, President Putin shows no signs of backing down. Instead, his speeches have taken a chilling turn. The Russian people especially are able to distinguish true patriots from bastards and traitors and will spit them out like a gnat that accidentally flew into their mouths. I am certain that this necessary and natural self-cleaning of our society will only strengthen our country. Vladimir Putin isn't the first autocratic leader that Russia has seen. So what can history teach us about what might happen next? How do you get rid of a tyrant? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, a brief history of Russian autocrats and why this isn't the end for Putin. I'm Roger Boys, and I'm the diplomatic editor for The Times. Roger is a veteran foreign correspondent and he has all the accumulated wisdom and the ability to see the bigger picture that comes from having reported on Russia for almost five decades. But he wasn't always like that. I'll tell you how I started my life. I did a master's in war studies. I went to a military school. I learned languages. So Reuters picked me up when I left university and perhaps overstating 
my Russian skills, they decided to send me to Moscow almost immediately. So I hadn't even really learned journalism. Actually, I was young enough not to be worried about it, but I, <laughs> I should have been. To, I should have been because I really about. didn't know what I was doing. I mean, take and, us back uh, to that moment because this is almost five decades ago now. Yeah. There you are as a young cub reporter yeah. being sent to Moscow for what yeah. sounds like the assignment of a lifetime. Tell us what you were expecting or what people were telling you about well, what I to expect. Well, I didn't know really. I, I, I thought I could just wing it, really. <laughs> Rather like now. And of course, you know, we're talking mid-70s. So it was a very sort of Cold warish atmosphere, but with slight cracks in it. And the big demonic figure in those days was Leonid Brezhnev, who had very bushy eyebrows. And by the mid-70s, actually, he looked also looked quite waxen. But I could see for a certain kind of person, he had some kind of charm. When he was young, he was a great dancer and flirt and so on. And actually, weirdly, he came from Dnepropetrovsk, so he came from Ukraine, Soviet Ukraine, as it was. What people knew about him then was that there was such a thing as a Brezhnev doctrine, which was that the Soviet Union had the right to interfere in any country that decided that they didn't want to be ruled by the Communist Party anymore, which was very menacing. And we knew what they meant, because in 1968, they'd invaded Czechoslovakia, which tried to have a reformist human face of communism kind of government under Dubček, which failed miserably and quite bloodily. Once again, the Soviet Union, demonstrating a colossal contempt for the opinion of mankind, has resorted to brute force to keep a satellite nation under control. Russian tanks and infantry, aided by troops from East Germany, Hungary, Poland, and Bulgaria, have occupied Czechoslovakia and have crushed the new and relatively liberal leadership of that small country. And they'd marched into Afghanistan. So behind this bluff presence, there was this kind of menace. And then there was a the sense that maybe he wouldn't last that long because he just looked ill. It looked like he was thinking slowly. All his statements were scripted. And there were people around him who looked as if they wouldn't mind having the job. So that was the assumption when I went. That, so when Reuters are packing you off yeah, as a young reporter, yeah. what, what, are they, what are they saying? Well, the first thing... I don't know whether you've ever been through this experience. Basically, you have to pay the first round of drinks when you leave to go anywhere. Even when you're that young? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The f first round was basically my month's salary, but they knew I was going to earn a foreign correspondence allowance, so they thought I could do it. And it was all, you go out and he'll die kind of thing. And it was, look on the bright side of it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll have the biggest story in the world. Yeah. 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 You'll have the biggest story in the world for at least for a day or two. So I thought, yeah. Maybe it will work out like that, that I'll see the end of one era and the beginning of another. But as it happened, I didn't. What happened when you got there? Well, when I got there, basically nothing changed. They were still faking the grain harvests. You know, if they could, they would have faked the ice hockey results. <laughs> probably if he died on the day I arrived, we probably wouldn't have known about it for a week because they would have faked the news of his death. But he didn't. He, he staggered on and on. And by the time I left, he was still there. And that's the way it works. Now, recently, I thought we work on certain assumptions about how it works over there. And we're usually wrong. We think that if you've done 
wrong things, you're vaguely somehow held accountable for them, even in a non-democracy. But it doesn't work like that. What happens is, if you've done something bad, and you've failed at something, and you've been publicly embarrassed by something that you failed at, then you look for other people to blame. And you begin a purge. And this is what happens. And you have then a complete changeover of elites, some of whom end up in jail, some of whom just get removed from their jobs, some of whom get retired very early, some of whom read the runes and, if they can, leave. And this gives the leader a chance to show that he's got rid of the problem, that he's open to renewal, that he's really a modernizer close to the people, and he buys himself a few more years. So what I was told was going to be end Brezhnev became mid Brezhnev. So I never got to be there. He didn't die until 82. They mourned him because for 18 years he had kept the Soviet system intact. His military funeral was meant to confirm his system. And I was busy watching the end of Poland, <laughs> in Polish communism in, in 82, so I didn't get to see that. And it's been the same for most of these leaders. Uh, that Stalin, for example, didn't go until he died in 1953. One of the points of these autocracies, these strongmen, is, of course, that you construct a system which doesn't really make for any kind of succession process at all. So you just have to wait for them to get dementia extra fast or, or just pop off. So... Are there lessons for what's happening now? Are all the predictions of Putin's days being numbered too yeah. optimistic? Well, I'm a bit of an embarrassing situation myself because I, I keep saying, well, this is his last war and this is the end of days and so on. But I've come round to the view that this isn't end Putin, this is mid Putin. We've got another five to eight years, something like this, of Putin still to go. And that's time enough for him to do all sorts of damage. We're already beginning to see what that damage will be. It'll be damage, most of all, to the very substance of Russia, to its civil society, and it'll be a proper purge. And the purge has already begun in many ways. Let's just say eight generals, some say nine generals, have lost their jobs. You know, you're right. It does feel like to understand modern Russia, you do have to dip into history. You know, you have to learn the lessons from previous leaders. And you, you mentioned Stalin there. Talk us through Stalin. For people who've forgotten, remind us of what was happening with the Great Purge of 1937. How did he go about consolidating power when it felt threatened? He came to power in 1928. That's to say he was, became the head of the party. And it didn't go swimmingly. He was collectivising agriculture, which turned out to be a deeply unpopular thing and led, of course, to famine. And there were plenty of people around him who were ready to challenge him in different ways. So he was already pretty paranoid and he became steadily more paranoid and he passed on more and more of the responsibility of daily management to the NKVD, the, the sort of forerunner of the KGB who were specialists in really in drawing up lists. They, they drew up these massive lists of suspect people and every evening he would read through them and sometimes he'd complain that there were too many people or that there was somebody he knew on the list and he didn't want 
Um, but basically, he would sign them all off. And in that way, in 1937 to 38, at least, at the very least, 680,000 people were executed. Loads of people were sent to the gulags and died there. There was a whole epidemic of suicides, especially in the cities, especially in Moscow. It was an extraordinary bloodletting. I think it was 1934, Sergei Kirov had been killed and assassinated. And these were quite rare events. This is a party bigwig, something. Yes, yes. Essentially, someone who could have been an alternative to Stalin. So the NKVD was set on the task of arresting people and finding out who could have done it. And they drew up these massive, what we would call now organograms, sort of networks of oppositionists who had a grudge against Stalin, and there was a lot of them. So that became the basis for the purge of 1937-38. After a while, I think it just it, it was such an exhausting process that it just wound down. And then Stalin started to purge the NKVD itself because he decided that they weren't doing the job properly. But in the meantime, he had wiped out a whole generation of, of brilliant playwrights and poets and also army officers, which then stood him in rather bad stead when Germany eventually in '41 invaded the Soviet Union because the army was in a terrible state still. It had lost a whole middle batch of competent and experienced officers, and the ones who remained were frightened to make any decisions that Stalin might disapprove of. So it was destructive of society on all levels. It destroyed an intelligentsia opposition to communist rule. It helped make the Soviet Union defenseless, and it created this climate of paranoia. And what's and, remarkable, I suppose, is you know the, the idea that having got the NKVD, this earlier version of the KGB, to set out the lists of people, these amazing diagrams of people and how they link up, mm. and all the people you should target, that turning on them and turning on generals in the army, yeah. it's the infrastructure around you as well as the people you thought you'd be targeting. Yeah. Everybody's suddenly a potential victim. Yeah. He started out in the early days as just being somebody who doesn't trust anybody. And that then became a kind of system of governance. It could be that's also the guiding principle of these kind of autocracies. So when we talk about the age of strong men, as some people do, mm. then you could say the same even within loosely democratic frameworks like Erdogan in Turkey and so on. They also have this basic inherent distrust of people, really. And the closer you are to him, the more likely it is that you will make him suspicious in some way. The climate of terror and just the numbers are astonishing, the number of people who were killed, the number of people who were sent to the gulags. What happened to the rest of society for the people who could sense the terror? How did it change Russian society? Well, of course, a lot. Some anticipated the purge and went abroad. There was a net outflow of the most interesting people of, of the Russian intelligentsia. And then that just gathered speed. And then when the purge itself began, it became still possible to leave. But by that time, you're caught in this kind of rabbit in, in the headlights kind of paralysis. And you just think, well, maybe this will all just pass me by or maybe I'll just go to my dacha for a few months and keep my head down and it never works. Coming up... So we're on nastiness level three... How much worse will it get? Well, I reckon nastiness level five. 
but first. This is Stig Abel and Asma Mir. We present The Breakfast Programme on Times Radio every Monday to Thursday from six o'clock. We talk to the leading politicians in the country. We go all around the world. We have a bit of a laugh. We can only do that thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. So subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are there similarities between Putin and what we saw Stalin doing? I think there are beginning to be comparisons, yeah. Until now, he's managed to dress up most of his wars, for example, as successes. You know, so the Chechen War. The annexation of Crimea was quite wildly popular in 2014 in Russia. Armored Russian vehicles burst through the wall of Crimea's Belbek base today, firing warning shots and throwing sound grenades. And as long as the economy bubbled along, as long as things never got to be as bad as they were in 2008 or so, when there was the global financial collapse, and as long as the oil price more or less kept the cash flowing and the gas too, he could basically ride things out. But what he's not capable of doing is riding out a cataclysmic crisis, which is what he's faced with now. The EU vowed deeper sanctions after seeing evidence of atrocities. We will advance as a matter of urgency the work on further sanctions against Kremlin's murderous war machinery. The whole issue of where revenue is going to come from, the collapse of the army as an institution, growing metropolitan opposition, the metropolitan youth... And there is only one way for him to deal with that. And that's not to say, oh, sorry, I made a mistake. It's actually to say, this shows what I've always said, which is we should cleanse society. 
like that is this a remarkable sentence. phrase, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Tell yeah. us a bit about how he's used it. He wants to demonstrate that the people who are opposed to him are in favor of a decadent Russia. That's to say, a Russia that leans towards the West, that's weak, that doesn't stand up for its own interests, that's not ready to fight for Russian values. It's a way of him constructing an enemy within. And that's what we have to worry about now. Whatever happens now in Ukraine, the next target will be the enemy within. And that's why his language does really smack of 1937. And so do some of his actions already, even before he's really got going. Eight or nine generals have been perched, maybe more. Defence minister kind of disappears Reappeared on video for a couple of minutes after everybody had noticed he hadn't been around for a fortnight. We continue to supply weapons and hardware ahead of schedule using credit means. The priorities are precision-guided long-range weapons, aviation hardware, and maintaining the combat readiness of the strategic nuclear force. Not exactly looking full of life either, I say. <laughs> the same with the head of the army, General Gerasimov. Uh, yeah, Gerasimov, the great prophet of, of the new style of warfare, turns out not to have been right. And yeah. not to have been around when the war actually broke out. <laughs> he was <laughs> yeah. kept away from Yeah, it's sight. sad. It's sad. But there's a whole batch of the officer class below general, that's essentially colonels and so on, who are either dropping in battle or in a few cases that we know of, or at least the Ukrainians tell us, are actually being shot in the back. So there's two things going on there. You've got the generals who are being killed by the Ukrainians. There's a whole mm. generation of them, it seems, who are being slowly wiped out. Mm. You've got the generals and the, the colonels, at least, who are being shot in the back by their own troops because mm. they're so angry about the way the war is being conducted on the ground. And then you've got the sense of the ones who are still in Moscow. Now, potentially, we're hearing about house arrests. We're hearing mm. about people just disappearing for weeks on end. I mean, what does that do to the infrastructure around Putin? Does this mean that he won't be launching the war again anytime soon? And by the way, it applies to Secret Service too, the FSB colonels. Tell us about that. Well, my understanding is that this whole war was planned with minimal involvement of the general staff. It was planned by a circle around Shoigu, the defence minister, but involving a lot of FSB, that's to say this the new variant of the new version of, of the, the KGB. new version <laughs> of the secret police but also specialists in this irregular fast warfare spetsnaz and these kind of people so these are sort of special the, forces and yeah. we know mercenaries have been on the ground too exactly but, and then, but not the regular army but they not the regular the army planet. who would normally have there would normally have been an information flow from top to bottom which would move you closer and closer to combat readiness Instead, everyone was shipped over to the West to the Belarus uh, border with Ukraine on the presumption that they were on military exercises. So they only packed for a week. Packing is really important for a soldier. He has to know these things in advance. And when you don't do that, then they feel they're not being properly led. So that's quite a fundamental flaw. Is that the sign of already a sense of suspicion and paranoia? not to even tell your own military. Yes. So we have to assume that this really is Putin's war, that he would go in and he would snatch the President Zelensky, take him somewhere and perhaps hold him under house arrest somewhere in Russia uh, until he gave way and 
made a speech on the radio saying that Ukraine had made mistakes and he begged Russia for forgiveness, that a 48-hour grab would have solved the issue. And that sounds so Putin, actually. And it certainly doesn't sound like a soldier. And it has to be said the defense minister has no battle experience either. Even though Putin himself was the man who structured all this and inspired it all, the people around him are the ones who have to pay for it. And that's the natural evolution now of this war, that Putin, who is a survivor, will turn and look inwards and create new elites in his image. But that's no good for Russia. It's not going to end quickly. There'll be an insurgency in Ukraine for years to come, or at least that's the way it looks. And it might spread. Belarus might explode. There are a lot of people who, in Belarus, young people who sympathise with what's going on there. Given how much they've collapsed militarily and how many senior officers they've lost, would Putin be able to wage war again anytime soon? Well, some people say, yes, he could do a diversionary war, but it would have to be small and quick and this time be successful, which would probably mean Moldova or Georgia, but more likely Moldova. It's extremely small and extremely poor. There's a Russian-speaking segment to it in Transnistria who are unhappy with Moldova. Moldova is looking more and more towards the EU. All the components are there. And seen through Putin's eyes, it's not a complicated operation. But frankly, he didn't think Ukraine was complicated either. And look what happened. So what about this Russian army? The whole of the West has been worried about for decades and decades. Look at the mess they made in Afghanistan and how it lost domestic support for the fight and how it just managed that whole war badly. The Soviet army completed its retreat. The last combat soldier to leave, Commanding General Boris Gromov. There was hoopla and ceremony at the border and blunt criticism in the Communist Party newspaper Pravda for ever getting involved. Really, from that moment, apart from two things, apart from the bombing of Syria, above all of Aleppo, which seemed to show the power of remote precision bombing and the grabbing of advantage, and apart from the annexation of Crimea in 2014, there'd be no Russian military successes. So maybe we have to revise what kind of threat Russia is to us. Maybe it's just a threat on one level or on two levels, the cyber level, perhaps, and the biochemicals level, perhaps. But in terms of man-to-man, tank-to-tank and all this kind of stuff, it's lost the technological edge. So do we need to really be so focused on the might of Russia? It's actually a quite fragile power. Often it has been a catastrophic war which has brought a regime to an end. If you look at Afghanistan and the quagmire that Russia sort of got pulled into there, it probably led to the end of the Soviet Union eventually. Is there a sense that if this goes badly, is that how it ends for Putin? Well, but my my thesis is there's always a time lag. Yeah, Mm. So there was a time lag between the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the Soviet Union. It, It was quite a significant time lag. And it's the same with a lot of these operations. So what does Putin do with that time lag? Does he push his country deeper and deeper into a nastier hole, which is my argument, Or does he say, oh, well, time for reform then? (laughs) And and this seems to be such an improbable scenario. I'm not even going to think about it. In the West, if you lose a war catastrophically, 
then you go. Then the government goes, the system has to be changed. Everything, like Germany in 1945, you have to really start from zero again. But in a place of never-ending autocracy, that doesn't really happen. It just goes through levels of nastiness. Mm. So we're on nastiness level three. How much worse will it get? Well, I reckon nastiness level five. <laughs> what does that look like? Well, it looks like sequential mini-wars. Violence, once it's entered the bloodstream, doesn't leave. It just becomes like sepsis. That was how it was in the 1930s. The assassination of Kirov introduced the idea that there was a violent option within revolutionary Russia. It wasn't just about shooting the czars. It was within the Bolshevik party there was scope for renewed violence. And that then fueled this idea of a purge. And it's the same with this war now, I think. Violence is in the bloodstream now, and it's not going to be easy to get rid of it. And in terms of working out how much longer Putin might be in power, you know, if you're looking back at the 1930s, Stalin carried on until his death for a long time after yeah, that. Yeah, 16 years. Do we expect the same of Putin? Well, it was slightly different in Stalin's case because he had a world war in the between. So, of course, he became a national hero in repulsing the Germans and he rallied the nation and got Western support for that. And then after the war, there came show trials. And in 53, he had a stroke. Mm. It's not a straight line. It's a kind of jagged line. And so we don't know what will happen. But Putin's health looks good. 16 years from now, he'll be whatever he is, 85. It seems improbable that he'll still be around that long. But, you know, we have a 78-year-old American president. Who knows? No, who, so who knows? Is there a slight sort of a death of Stalin sort of scenario here where it's just that nobody quite knows who would take over after him and the chaos that might come if he's not there? Mm. I think there's an absolute fear throughout the whole of society, but also through the ruling class of what happens when he goes. And that's what you got in that moderately funny film about the death of Stalin, and that they're all gathered around and they're terrified of taking responsibility. There's no one to give them orders because the guy's dead. And they all have an inkling of what terrible things could happen next. So there's leadership mm. and elite paralysis. And I think that's probably what will happen. When Putin goes... One would normally say, oh, well, now it's business back to normal. But what was normal? Normal was drunken Boris Yeltsin. Was it the Soviet Union? Was it Leonid Brezhnev? What was normal? There was no normal. There's not a natural successor within the leadership circles that could actually take over. And that's, of course, a dangerous moment. And Roger, going back to your first big reporting trip out in Moscow, you're there for what should be the dying days of Brezhnev, but he goes on and on. Having seen that, that felt like a regime that would never end. But it did. Yeah. How do you see this one um, ending, changing? It has to end, but it should end in a way that provides for some kind of accountability for the people who've pushed ordinary Russians into this hole. Stalin died in 53, but Khrushchev didn't make his speech denouncing Stalin until 1956. So three years went by where it wasn't clear how Russians really should think about Stalin, whether they should mourn him, whether Soviet leadership should be carved in his image, or whether there was a new way of doing things. And Khrushchev realized, but it took a while, that you have to make a clean break from everything that was happening. After the Second World War, 
British or American troops would take ordinary Germans to the camps that w which had been working for the last four or five years and killing, murdering, slaughtering people, Jews, other people, so that they realized what had been going on in their name. There has to be some kind of educational moment for the Russians so they realize that Putin actually isn't a dead hero. He's Vladimir the Terrible. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times diplomatic editor and foreign affairs columnist, Roger Boys. You can read more of Roger's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Chris Wade, James Shield, and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>